when the day of Pentecost had come, the disciples were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we do week by week, to be here in this place with us now, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Pentecost, which we celebrate today, seems to get more culturally relevant with every passing year. In preparation for this sermon, I looked back through some of my notes for past Pentecost sermons, and a lot of them begin with descriptions of how divided the world is, politically, socially, theologically, you name it. And it seems like every year I would say something like, and it's even more so now. But I think it only seems that way. Actually, one of the things my little sermon note in review time showed me, along with all of the world history that I've ever read, is that the world has always been divided. This clan against that clan, the Spartans against the Persians, this idea against that one. It's the universal human story, right? Us versus them. And because that division, and really the reconciliation of that division, is what Pentecost is about, Pentecost will always be culturally relevant. But I do think that of all the Christian feasts, Pentecost might be one of the ones for which it's most difficult to trace the cultural relevance, to see the connection to today. I mean, Christmas, for instance, the birth of a baby happens much the same way today as it did when Jesus was born, albeit mostly in hospitals and birthing centers rather than in mangers in our ancestral hometowns. And even Easter, we get a story that's relatively easy to digest. There's a man executed We put his body here. The tomb in which he was laid is empty. And while the explanation we get for that empty tomb, that he who was once dead has defeated death and is alive again, while that explanation is certainly fantastic, and many people don't believe it, it is an explanation for which we at least have categories, right? Dead and alive. Pretty simple. But Pentecost... Pentecost is very weird. Not too long after the events of Holy Week, the disciples are hiding in an upper room, and the risen Jesus has visited them and told them to wait, and so they are waiting. And suddenly, Luke writes in Acts, from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. You can see why the gathered crowd, when the apostles come out of that room talking like this, speaking languages that they don't know, you can see why the crowd assumes that they're drunk. That's the normal category we have for behavior like this. That would be the simple explanation for this occurrence. New wine consumed too early in the morning. And that would have some obvious cultural relevance. But that's not what's going on at all. In fact, to understand what's happening here and to see why Pentecost has huge and specific relevance for us today, we have to go way back in history. In fact, we're going to go back before history, all the way back to a time before dates started being applied. When my kids were learning the timeline of ancient history, the first thing for which they had an actual date to memorize was the calling of Abraham in 2000 BC. Before that, for things like Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood of Noah, all they had to remember was prehistory. And the last event of prehistory is the Tower of Babel. And that's what we're going to look at this morning to help us really understand what's going on at Pentecost. That's the scope of what God is doing in the world. We're going to go to prehistory to help us understand what's happening right now, today. So, Genesis 11. Just before the calling of Abraham, the world is populated by one people who live in one place and speak one language. There is unity, but there is also great and sinful pride. Come, the people say in Genesis 11, verse 4, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. This, in a sentence, is the universal human desire. This is exactly what Adam and Eve thought when they believed the serpent's lie. If you eat that fruit, you will be like God. Come on, the serpent might well have been saying. Make a name for yourself. We sinners are always trying to make a name for ourselves. So when God comes down from the real heaven and sees what the people are doing, sees the sinful pride at work in them, when he sees their attempt to make a name for themselves by building this tower that's supposed to reach the heavens, God judges them. Just like Adam and Eve, who were expelled from Eden after they sinfully tried to make a name for themselves, that is, a name without God, just like them, God's people in Genesis 11 are expelled from their togetherness. They are expelled from their community of one people and one language. Come, says God, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel 
because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so it is, down until today. Look around you. Are we not a people dispersed? Not only over the face of the earth, which is still certainly true, we have spread out to the four corners of this planet and are separated by our languages, cultures, and skin tone. But aren't we dispersed in every other way, too? We are dispersed by what political party we support, by what sports team we root for, by what shows we watch. But we are also dispersed by more profound and moral issues, too. Do we believe that God created humankind in his image? Do we unreservedly submit ourselves to the word of God? Do we honor and protect life even before it's born, while it's in the womb? We are dispersed even by our opinions about whether or not things like objective truth and morality even exist. Indeed, one of the great moral divisions of our time is whether or not men should be allowed to dress as caricatures of women and perform sexually suggestive shows for children. We are dispersed. And all of this dispersal is due to our dispersal of worship. As we said a few weeks ago, there are a ton of gods to worship today. You've got the traditional gods, Yahweh, of course, who we worship as the one true God revealed in the Bible, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But millions worship Allah of Islam and the pantheon of Hinduism. There are the historic pagan gods, Molech, Baal, Asherah, and more. And finally, the most popular gods of our day, the gods of the shopping mall that aren't called gods, sex, money, and power, driven by self-actualization, self-fulfillment, and self-justification. We categorize ourselves in these ways and more, drawing sharp dividing lines between us and them. And some of these dividing lines are appropriate and good. Some are trivial and unnecessary. Some, indeed, are actually evil. But they all point to the truth on the ground, that we are dispersed. And Babel is the story of how we got here. Human pride built up into a tower struggling to reach the heavens in order to make a name for ourselves, inviting and then receiving the judgment of God. But now, at Pentecost, the beginning of reconciliation, now Jesus has lived, has died, has risen, Accomplishing the salvation of all who trust in his name. We are redeemed, made right with almighty God by Christ's name and by his holy work. Jesus has ministered. We read in the gospel. He has come back and shown his disciples his wounds, his palms, his scarred side. And Jesus, as we celebrated just last week, has now ascended to the Father. 
as we talked about at the Feast of the Ascension, he ascended to prepare a place for us in his Father's house. And he ascended to intercede for us before the Father. Good news. But I left something out last week. I had to save something for Pentecost Sunday. There's another reason for Jesus' ascension. Jesus also ascended so that he could send us the Holy Spirit. He ascended so that he could reverse the curse of Babel. He ascended so that he could, having reconciled humanity to God, begin reconciling us to one another. He ascended so that he could make the dispersed one. As part of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer at the Last Supper, when he looks up to the Father and asks him to glorify the Son, as part of that prayer, Jesus asks the Father to make his people one. I am asking on their behalf, Jesus prays. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one, as you are one. Jesus asks God, his Father, just before his mighty acts, his blessed passion and precious death, his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension, and his promise to come again, just before all that, Jesus asks God to make his people one. And now we see how he's going to do it. During that same Last Supper, Jesus talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, he tells his disciples, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. And will be in you. John 14, 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 15, 26. When the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And finally, John 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus ascends to send the Holy Spirit. And on Pentecost, we see what the Holy Spirit has wrought. Where there was once dispersal, there is now oneness. As Luke writes in Acts 2, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. 
You heard the list so wonderfully and perfectly read by David. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, all of these dispersed people, though gathered in this one place for a festival, are still, in a sense, living under the curse of Babel. They speak all these different languages. No one can understand each other until something amazing happens. Until the curse begins to be reversed. Suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Each speaker of these disparate languages begins to hear the disciples' proclamation in the language they can understand. They hear it, In their own language, they are all hearing one thing together. And what exactly are they hearing? What is it that the disciples are proclaiming? They were proclaiming, Luke records, God's deeds of power. That's how Luke phrases it. God's deeds of power. The disciples are preaching. And everyone can understand this sermon no matter where they are from or what language they speak. These apostles are telling the gathered people, gathered in Jerusalem from all over the known world, what God has accomplished, his deeds of power, what he has done by sending his son into the world to live for them, to die in their place, and to be raised again to make them right with him. This good news, the disciples say, is available to them, to all of these different people, if they will just believe it. It's available equally to everyone. What an inversion this is. These people have been scattered to the four winds since Genesis 11. Since they tried to make a name for themselves by their own deeds of power by building that great and impressive tower. Now they are gathered in one place again, but now they are hearing about God Almighty's deeds of power, done both to glorify his own name and to accomplish their salvation. And they are all hearing this at one time together. They are hearing it as one. Now, this is good news for sinful, disparate people like you and me. You don't need to make a name for yourself. You are given a new name and indeed a new life in Jesus Christ. I have called you by name, our Lord says in Isaiah 43. You are mine. Adam and Eve tried to make a name for themselves without God. The people at Babel tried to make a name for themselves without God. 
The people gathered in the temple courtyard on Good Friday tried to make a name for themselves without God. And the world today tries to make a name for itself without God. And you are tempted day in and day out to make a name for yourself without God. But that's why we've come here this morning. That's why we gather together in this place week by week. We come to reenact Pentecost, to announce that though it was our iniquity that nailed Jesus to that cross, he has risen from the dead. Though we are sinners scattered from each other, he has saved us. We confess our sins and hear absolution in his name, in his name, not in ours. We eat and drink his body and blood, remembering all that he has done for us, all he has done, not us. And the Holy Spirit is released in this body. And we, now together as one, Proclaim God's deeds of power to this exhausted world, trying so desperately to make a name for itself without God. We proclaim God's deeds of power, his finished work in Jesus Christ, that he is even now reconciling to himself by the finished work of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, after all this time, From prehistory to now, we are one again. Maybe not one in tongue, tribe, or nation. Not yet. But one with everyone in every tongue, tribe, and nation. First, we are one in our sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But finally, we are one in our salvation. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the good news of Pentecost. Good news that is totally relevant today. Right now, the Holy Spirit is here and at work reconciling sinners to each other and all of creation to Almighty God. All of this is accomplished in and by Christ, by his blessed passion and precious death, by his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension, and his promise to come again. These are God's deeds of power, and they are, in and by Jesus Christ, accomplished for you. Amen.